0: This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in-person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey entrepreneurs, my name is Felix and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, you heard about how KnoxLabs.com validated a business using just a splash page and how he's made $2.9 million in 2015. On today's podcast, you learn from an entrepreneur that took a very pragmatic approach to choosing his niche and how you can be successful even if you're not passionate about the product itself as long as you have a passion for business. In this episode, you'll learn how to prepare when you're thinking about making the jump from the nine-to-five job to working on your business full-time, why it's critical and what does it mean to add meaningful value when you're drop shipping, and how to create content when you don't know anything about the industry yet. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Udarian, founder of RightChannelRadios.com, eCommerceFuel.com, and the eCommerce Fuel podcast. Right Channel Radios is the number one source for truck and 4x4 CB radio equipment, and eCommerce Fuel is an eCommerce blog and private community for six- and seven-figure store owners. Right Channel Radios was started in 2008 and based out of Bozeman, Montana. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Hey, thanks, Felix. Appreciate you inviting me on.
0: Um, so yeah, big fan of your work and uh, content for the e-commerce entrepreneurs and definitely want to get into the e-commerce fuel side of your business in a bit. But let's first start talking about your store. Tell us a little bit about Right Channel Radios and what are some of the most popular products that you sell?
1: Yeah, so Right Channel Radios is, like you mentioned, a, a retailer for, for radio equipment, for for trucks, Jeeps, 4x4s, Focus on old school CB radio equipment and yeah, I mean, the popular things we sell are really antennas, radios, cables, mounts, uh, pretty much anything you need to to hook up a CB radio system in your vehicle.
0: Mm-hmm. So what's your background? How did you get into selling CB radios?
1: It's it, it, as surprising as it may be, it was not a lifelong dream from a, from a childhood <laughs> age. <laughs> yeah. uh, I worked a job out of college for a couple of years in finance and I uh, ended up, kind it's kind of your typical story. You know, you work for the man for a while, worked with some great people, but realized it's not what I wanted to do long-term. And so I quit and was exploring a bunch of different options. Didn't know necessarily I wanted to, to specifically get into radios, but I uh, had a hunch one of the things I was exploring was was e-commerce. Uh, and I spent uh, probably two to four weeks just really evaluating options and exploring and doing research and decided on the e-commerce route. I uh, decided on radio equipment based on some research I did and just kinda of dove in. So that's that's kind of the short story of how it worked out.
0: Yeah. So you um had a job already, sound like a stable job. I think a lot of people can relate to this and wanted something more so you just straight up one day quit your job without knowing exactly where you were going to land or where you even wanted to land and we're just kind of out there in the field and looking around what was that moment like how did did it feel liberating or was it like nerve-wracking like give us an idea of what it feels like to make that jump without knowing where you're going to land yeah it
1: felt it felt good um it wasn't too scary because I had been been pretty good about saving up money the mm-hmm. previous you know couple of years, and was a bachelor at the time. No family, didn't have a whole lot of expenses or dependents, and so uh, I had a a, a decent sized runway. And it was exciting. I mean, it's always a little scary when you take a leap, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do next. But but for the most part, it was it was pretty exciting.
0: What, do you, what would you say if someone asked you for advice on on this situation where they are thinking about, maybe not immediately, but they're working on p- planning towards uh, going full-time into a business or just going full-time or just leaving their full-time job like you did and figuring it out? Like what, what were some things that you would recommend they kind of prepare maybe you know six months ahead of time to make sure that that, that transition is smooth?
1: Um just hoarding as much cash as possible and mm-hmm. cutting your expenses. I mean, that's that maybe the obvious one, but uh, I think there's kind of two types of people in the world: the people that look at money as a means for buying stuff, and people that look at money as a, a means of buying like freedom and flexibility and and options optionality. So I, I'd really try to you know do that. Uh, I'd also try to learn as much as you can while you're. Uh, gearing up to quit. Uh, I don't necessarily know if the quitting cold turkey like I did is best for everyone. It was great for me. It gives you a real sense of motivation, but there's been a lot of people who have successfully transitioned out of a job with a side hustle or a side project. And obviously that's less, much less risky, but regardless, the more you can start just going to town on learning as much as possible, reading and getting up to speed on e-commerce and marketing and uh, those kind of things, it, that helps tremendously. So you don't just hit the ground without any revenue, you know, without oh. any revenue or business and and have to learn everything from scratch.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to ask you to kind of put yourself in that position back then, back in, I guess, 2007, 2008, when you decided to quit your full-time job. Because I, I think there are listeners out there that are, have this drive to do something more, start a business, but then don't know where to, they know that kind of where they want to be, but they don't know how to get there. Like, what is, what are the first steps towards moving that direction? So can you give us an idea of how you, uh, I guess not necessarily decided where you're going to be, but like what steps did you take to expose you, expose you to the options uh, that you eventually, you know, chose, which was e-commerce?
1: It was like, what do I want my life to look like? And, it wasn't all about money because I just had got done with a job that I could have made a ton of money in but was limiting in a lot of different ways. So I sat down and I said, you know, I want, I want to call my own shots. Uh, I want something that doesn't require a crazy amount of startup, startup capital, something that's location independent, um, that has X amount of potential. Uh, and so I wrote out those criteria, what I ultimately what the end result I wanted to be was. And I looked at a bunch of things. I looked at being a freelance photographer. I looked at uh, doing options trading and I looked at e-commerce and e-commerce kind of fit, especially drop shipping e-commerce kind of fit those criteria. So after thinking about it and dabbling in all three of those for a couple of weeks and really giving it some time to marinate, I was like, okay, I'm going to go forward with e-commerce. And um, you never really, I think this is kind of something that's just true in life, but you never, you don't always have complete certainty about what you're going to do. And I think a lot of times people, let that stop them from moving forward. But I think the most successful people I, I know are really good at making decisions with incomplete information or imperfect information and moving forward. You can always backtrack, but, um, so move forward kind of thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to work with. At that point I knew it was e-commerce. And so I said, okay, well, w- what's important for me in e-commerce? Like what's my goal here? And again, it was just to make a viable business that could, could, buy me financial independence and, and freedom. And so I took much more of a pragmatic approach to picking an itch versus a, oh, I have to be in love mm. with this uh, product that I sell. And so I set up some criteria based on some research I'd done online, based on some things that I just kind of intuitively thought, like to want to pick an itch that has a certain amount of demand that's, that's high enough that you can actually make a living on it, but it's not so, not so popular. You're going to have to fight with a ton of people um, you know, things like something that isn't easy to get locally, a niche where hopefully you're more sophisticated than the competitors, et cetera, et cetera. And so at that point I had my list of criteria and I started brainstorming. And so for probably a couple of weeks I went through and just, I went through supplier directories, like worldwide brands, walking down the street. Anytime I saw something weird, like let's say, you know, the racks on the back of a bicycle or uh, motorcycle helmets, I just jotted down. And then I had a list of 50 ideas, compared those to my criteria And immediately just kind of top ahead, eliminated probably 90% of them based on my criteria. I had maybe half a dozen left and I did a deep dive on those. Found the one that based on some really in-depth research, I felt like had the most potential based on my criteria. And then that was radios. And even then I was like, really? Like this is really what it is? (laughs) And going back to that thing about uncertainty, wasn't sure about it, but it's either go back to the beginning or move forward and give it a shot. And so I did, the best work I could and move forward with Yeah, that. I like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, two, two, two things I want to say about what you just said, which was about the uncertainty aspect of it. And I think that's totally true. And I actually had a podcast that was released today where by the time this comes out, it was released a couple weeks ago uh, with the founders of Lisa.com, which is the uh, ma- the mattress um, seller that that, uh, that was launched on Shopify. And uh, with, yeah, oh, one yeah. of the founders, he was saying that one of the I think keys for him for success was to look at envision the upside of every single risk you take because we're so conditioned i think maybe just as humans in general but also as business people to assess the entire situation and then there's always going to be a reason to say no a reason not to do it and i think what separates the entrepreneurs that are successful from the rest of the pack is that they're able to move forward because maybe they prepare themselves mentally to say let me look at the upside or maybe they just say okay you know maybe the upside's there maybe it's not but let's just move forward anyway with, with this uncertainty because like you're saying you can always adapt once you're in the game you, you, once you're in it you can always backtrack and you know you don't necessarily want to always backtrack but just having that option in the back of your mind can sometimes help you move forward because it's that fear of what if I make the wrong decision but like you're saying sometimes you, a lot of times you can always backtrack and don't be held back by the fear of making like the wrong decision um, so I want to say you know I really like that point and, and, and the other point was about how the other question that came up based on what you're saying was you took this really analytical approach, this really methodical approach to deciding, A, what you want to do with your life, and B, what kind of products you want to sell, which I think you know, I, really, I really like that approach. Uh, but I, I'm assuming that at the end of the day when you're looking at these uh, this list and this, these criteria that you're looking at, were there more than one, one great option? And at that time, or maybe you face this today even, when there is more than one great option, how do you choose to focus on just one thing?
1: It's funny, i trying to remember back, and I
0: can I remember
1: maybe it's been a long time to remember what my other options were. I don't necessarily remember there being uh, so many options it was hard mm-hmm. to pick. I remember there being so many different question marks and uncertainties and variables that I was like, are any of these going to work? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, maybe that's just me being a worst case scenario and kind of seeing the holes and everything. But uh, yeah, so for me, I think the, the one with CB radios was was just, this is the one that looks like it has the... You know, meets the most criteria, and again, not it looks like a home run, but it looks like it might be feasible. So that wasn't really a problem for me so much.
0: Mm-hmm. So, is this an exercise that you think still works today? If someone wants to approach uh, the, this decision of choosing which product to sell, which business to get into, by following what you did, and maybe you can kind of explain, like at least maybe a few of the core uh, criteria that you you looked at when you made a decision.
1: Yeah, so so there's a a bunch of different ways we could kind of take that, Felix. I think in terms of having a list of criteria for getting into the market today, I think that's important. Um, I think that list of criteria has actually changed. Um, so like I started out and still own the business and we still drop ship, but I think drop shipping is getting a lot more competitive. It's getting more difficult. I think Amazon's making it a lot lot more difficult, uh, where, you know, let's say seven, eight years ago when I got started, distribution was a big issue. It's what primarily I was solving. Um, that's less of an issue today with Amazon. So you can pick a drop shipping niche and there's a bunch of criteria. If you want, we can get into those, but I think the criteria have changed and uh, it's more about today having a great list of criteria where you can pick from a a product that you can you know uh, manufacture or at least a product line you can manufacture to supplement some drop shipping and also that checklist be more focused about your customers, your marketing, uh, to a lesser extent the product, but yeah, the the, the way, checklists are important, but I think that the specific items are different.
0: Mm, yeah, let's get into drop shipping and if you guys, you know, listeners don't know, uh, Andrew is one of the co authors of the uh, Ultimate Guide to Dropshipping book that was on, on Shopify and obviously has a lot of dropshipping knowledge because of his businesses. So you were saying that the market, I'm not sure if you're saturated or not, but you were saying how it's harder to get into because of Amazon. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, sure. So, and let me preface this by saying, again, I love dropshipping. I still own a dropshipping business that, that uh, you know, um, is, is a meaningful business, does well. And so it's definitely possible, it's definitely uh, very viable, and there's some great advantages to having dropshipping. You don't know capital up front, you can work from anywhere. Um, but uh, it's it's getting more competitive. And I think to find a great drop shipping niche takes a lot more work than to find just a regular niche if you're manufacturing your own product. So um, so in terms of dropshipping, and apologies, Felix, were you saying what are the what are the criteria people should look at for a great niche. Is that what you're
0: asking? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Like, if you were to, if someone out there is listening, wants to get started and you know drop shipping, like you're saying, is low risk and something easy to get started in, uh, but it's going to be harder to find the products that you should be selling. So, give us an idea of how you would coach someone, I guess, to approach uh, finding the right niche to to uh, drop ship in.
1: Yeah, I think that the biggest thing, if you only take away one. One thing from kind of this little sub conversation on drop shipping is that if you're drop shipping you've got to add value you have to add meaningful value somewhere because you're not adding it through manufacturing the product you're not adding it through like a unique distribution channel because if most of the time if you're drop shipping something those suppliers are willing to drop for anyone else so so you have to first and foremost add information somewhere uh, for the niche we're in, radio equipment, the way we add value is through it's inherently a confusing purchasing process. There's, you know, to to get one of our our setups uh, installed on a vehicle, it takes six six or seven components. Uh, It's not necessarily intuitive which one of those components are best for each vehicle. And for someone to go onto Amazon and try to put those together, they might be able to do it. But one, Amazon doesn't specialize in that, but even secondly, it's really difficult to, it's a lot of work to, to go through and, and put together a cart of seven or eight items on Amazon that you may or may not, you know, know we're going to work together. So for us, our big advantage is informationally is we, we help people uh, with that buying uncertainty. So, um, so that's that's the biggest one I look at. Uh, information can be a huge way to add value in dropshipping. Some of the other things you want to look at is is you want to look at niches that are accessory heavy because margins on dropshipping are, are by default much lower than say manufacturing or even stocking your own products because there's less barriers to entry. You don't have any risk up front. And so because of that, more people are in the game and that drives the prices lower. So uh, if you can find a niche where the majority of your revenue, or at least a good portion of it, is made up through multiple accessories, you'll be able to make more money because somebody just comes, we sold trolling motors for a while and those were, ended up selling that business. But uh, the margins on those were were tiny, like 10%. They were big ticket purchases, $1,000 and people would price shop like crazy for them. But with, you know, like our, our radio business... Uh, people buy a radio, which we don't make very much money on those, are maybe a hundred dollar radio where we make our money is on all the accessories that, that they purchase alongside it. Like a $20 cable that has a hundred percent markup, uh, an antenna that has a hundred percent markup, you know, these kind of things. So they buy uh, you know, six, seven items. We don't make any on the big ticket item. We make all of our money on the accessories. So having a lot of accessories is really helpful. Um, those are the two big ones. There's a bunch of other ones like, for example, um, I know you have, have to, of course, be able to make sure you can find good quality suppliers that... Uh, hopefully you can find multiple suppliers so you're not dependent on, on just one supply chain. A bunch of other things, but those are the two big ones I'd, I'd recommend people look at.
0: Mm, so you are saying before that uh, with drop it was a lot easier to get into Previously, because you were solving a distribution problem, now that's no longer an issue. You have to find other ways to add meaningful value. And I think what you're getting at is that you now have to focus less on the product because the product is something that anybody can sell if they can find the uh, the dropshipper that that you're working with. But improve by but add value by either improving the experience, like how you guys are doing with improving the buyer experience, or providing content or education. Are there any other kind of angles that you think a um, it, a dropshipping uh, business can uh, can use to differentiate themselves from, from others?
1: Yeah, this isn't necessarily as much on the customer side, but on the marketing side, uh, again, because your margins tend to be lower on the dropship side, um, It it is harder to to scale up these businesses with with paid traffic. Um, I'd say on average, dropshipping margins are probably twenty five percent on the high side, probably more like you know ten percent, maybe even high single digits on the uh, on the low side. And so, um, yeah, using paid channels is difficult. AdWords, Facebook ads, you can do it, but it's tough. Mm -hmm. So. Um, if you can find a market where a dropshipping niche where there's the possibility for a lot of organic marketing, a lot of SEO marketing, a lot of word of mouth marketing, um, that's something that you can build up. And uh, if you can build that up, it takes more of a long term approach, but uh, is definitely a bit of a moat that that you can, you know, if you're willing to put in the time, can help uh, kind of protect your dropshipping business. Uh, like our CB business, for example. Um, I mean, definitely, there's you could there's someone who's really smart and ambitious could come and compete with us, but it would be. More difficult for them to do that and take longer because we 've got you know eight years of SEO work and marketing wow. work behind it, and i don 't think you could compete with us buying the traffic you 'd have to do it organically, which is, which is harder so um, going back to that, if you can look at a niche where uh, CBRI was a little tough to market, but uh, if you can look at a niche where either you have uh, kind of, an inside angle and can market it well, or just, if you've just got great SEO or or organic marketing chops, that, that can help a lot too.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, is it harder or easier to defend your position or differentiate yourself when you are a dropshipper that already had, that's already kind of entrenched, like, you know, like you're saying seven, eight years into the business. Is it, do you think that a business that wasn't a dropshipper would have an easier time, uh, with competition or harder time compared to your situation?
1: I think it depends on. So, are you asking if if a, if a someone who wasn't a dropshipper, if it would be easier to compete if they if they stocked everything?
0: Yeah, like is that a, is that like a, a position that you think dropshippers want to move towards eventually, or can you stay and defend your position indefinitely as a dropshipper?
1: Yeah. Okay. I got you. Good question. So it's it's easier if you can move up the value chain where um, instead of dropshipping, you're buying um, and bringing those products in house. You can definitely compete more effectively because usually your margins increase. You you know if you're dropshipping, let's say your margin is twenty percent. If you buy it from the manufacturer in bulk, let's say you double it to forty percent. So if that's the case, you can spend more on marketing. Uh, you can spend more to acquire a customer and. You know, offer better pricing. There's a lot of reasons why on the marketing side and the pricing side, you can compete more effectively. So yeah, absolutely. It's easier to defend your position if if the more, you, the further you get to, you know, being the manufacturer of the product, going from dropshipper to wholesaler to manufacturer. Um, unfortunately, was, we looked at that in, in the Rachel Radio's business, and this is something to think through too. If you do start a dropshipping business, uh, the margin increase we get from stocking products is is pretty negligible. Mm-hmm. It's 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 unfortunate. So, you know, instead of say doubling your margin, we get maybe you know a five percent cost savings for bringing everything in house. Which at the end of the day, it just doesn't make sense to uh, you know build a warehouse mm-hmm. and staff it and everything. Much riskier. Uh,
0: yeah, makes sense. So I want to go back to your pragmatic approach to finding a niche to sell in. So you were basically saying. But it's the pragmatic approach and the other side, I think, is the passion-infused approach where you focus on what you're passionate and you are the kind of customer that is your ideal customer already. So can you talk to us a little bit about the kind of pros and cons of the, uh, the approach that, that you've taken, which is to look at it analytically rather than, you know, the quote-unquote follow-your-passion, um, I guess, method?
1: Yeah, so pros, you know, pros of the analytical method are. I think you're more likely to succeed. Uh, you've got a better chance of actually building up a viable business. Um, the cons, the big biggest con is that it's going to be probably harder to be motivated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially in the early days getting getting started. It was. There's were some brutal weeks of writing CB radio purchasing guides and sending hundreds of outreach emails to people with radio blogs that just were, you know, soul sucking. And because um, I didn't really inherently care about it, that was driven by kind of an external force. So that's the downside. The nice thing is, uh, and I, I still believe this is, is true. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, especially kind of just entrepreneurs at heart, they don't care as much about. Are they? It's not as crucial that they love what they're selling mm-hmm. as much as they're. You know they love the process of mm. of you know, planning and executing and thinking through the problems and solving those problems and growing. Uh, you know they could be selling hula hoops or CB radios or you know, stocking caps and, and it's all fun and games. So the other side, the passion side is, it's probably just the flip side of that. I mean, uh, on the upside, you're more, you're probably more motivated, especially early on to, to stick with something, uh, to be able to, maybe you've got an informational advantage. Uh, you don't have to learn as much about it because you've, you know, it's something you've been interested in on the downside. Again, it's a, a lot of times I think with our passions, we like anything that um, where emotion is involved, we can't necessarily see super clearly, you know, you might, be really excited about something and think that you know it's going to make a great business but it doesn't and, 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 and but you can't see that because you personally are so wrapped up in it um so that that I think that's the downside there the holy grail of all of this right of course is something that you're passionate mm-hmm. about and that uh, is kind of the Venn diagram yeah. where those two intersect but I think that's n- not impossible but it is a tricky tricky thing to to find if you can find it oh man i mean
0: Congratulations, but it's uh, it's not always possible. Yeah, I agree with that. So you you know, one of the cons that you listed was just uh, your experience of having to write all of this content for something that you weren't passionate about or maybe you didn't know much about, so it requires a big learning curve involved. I think there's gonna be other, other listeners out there, other entrepreneurs that are in a similar situation where they have started a business and they are not the ideal customer and they're you know taking this pragmatic approach that you're talking about. So how do you create content when you don't know anything about about the industry, or you're not, you know, passionate about the industry at that moment.
1: Yeah, great question. So for for the radios, um, I did it in a number of ways. One, I called up the suppliers and annoyed the heck out of their salesmen. You know, once we got the account set up, I called them up and I chatted with them for. Oh, you know, they probably regretted regretted bringing me on as a client early on because I wasn't doing hardly any revenue yeah. and I was taking up a bunch of their time with questions. So grilling reps at your suppliers, and that's something where. If you're evaluating a niche, getting a sense of how well your supplier reps know the product line is is is, is something that I put into like a uh, kind of a little a criteria sheet to think through. Um, so that's one. Um, talking with customers, just talking with customers, you learn a ton about stuff, and you got to be nimble and on your feet because a lot of times they ask you questions that you don't can't answer. But uh, you know that's how you learn about your customer and the product, and uh, sometimes you got to say, hey, you know what, I'm new here. I'm not sure about that. Let me find out and get back to you. And then you get a you know, you hang up on the phone and you do some internet research. You call the supplier again, if they're still accepting your calls and, and, uh, get an answer and get back to them. And you slowly learn that way. Um, just ordering the product I ordered, you know, first thing I did when I started the business was ordered a radio and installed it on my own vehicle and learned a lot that way. And online, I mean, it doesn't go for absolutely everything, but if you've got the discipline to do it, you can learn just about anything on the internet today. I mean, so just putting in the time to really dive, do a deep dive on something that may not be as riveting as, uh, you know, the most recent blockbuster, but... You can, you can learn a lot if you've committed to just reading a lot of articles online.
0: Yeah, and the other, I think, important thing here is that when we approach, when, when us entrepreneurs we, or marketers or content creators approach a project either for their own store or for your blog and you have to write about a topic you don't know much about, we sometimes think like, man, I got to become like a super, super expert so that no one thinks that I am don't know what I'm talking about. But surprisingly, you don't really have to, I'm not saying that you shouldn't educate yourself as much as possible, but you don't have to feel like you have to be spending you know 3 or 4 years or whatever researching before you start putting out content you just have to provide value right it doesn't have to position yourself as the extreme expert in some particular topic as long as you're pro- providing value and i think as long as providing value consistently i think it goes much further than someone that provides great value every once in a while so i think that's a i think an important point to make
1: yeah, yeah i mean if you spend if you spend 2 weeks researching something thoroughly you're going to know more about it than 99% of the population, even, you know, and, and more to know about it probably than 95% of yeah. the people who are in the market for what you're buying.
0: So Yep, totally. And then while you are teaching it back out or, you know, writing about it, then that just solidifies that knowledge even more within inside yourself. So you're not actually, you know, wasting time creating content. You're actually learning more about, about your market. So it's definitely a worthy exercise to go through if you are, want to create content for an industry, industry that you don't know much about yet. So I want to talk a little bit about your your marketing. So you were saying before that, especially with drop shipping, PPC is hard. It doesn't seem like you guys spend too much time on social media. Has your has your business always been driven by organic, like just traffic from from Google and, and SEO?
1: Primarily, yeah. I think we probably get two thirds of our our traffic through SEO, and then the remainder comes through kind of word of mouth advertising and website referrals. Uh, so yeah, it's it's. Very heavily driven, which I mean, definitely has its uh, its pros and cons, which we can get into. But yeah, we're very heavily on the organic traffic side.
0: Yeah. So one thing I really like about the uh, RightChannelRadios.com website is that you have a whole section dedicated to guides. It's called the Learning Center. Is that where you put the most of your content? Is that where you guys create a lot of kind of SEO driven content, or are there other parts of the website that that really demonstrates your kind of content heavy, SEO heavy approach? Yeah, that's the, that's
1: the big one. So that's kind of where our technical resource library where, yeah, we really wanted to try to create a hub and a resource online that would be, you know, one of, if not the definitive place to learn about how to install and select and troubleshoot uh, radios for your vehicles. And so we did that there. Um, but we also did a lot of, uh, you know, I'd say that definitely helps, especially I think the last, you know, two, three years with Google looking and, and looking for quality content and, and weighing on-site stuff. But we also did a lot of outreach and a lot of, uh, uh, you know third party outreach early on in terms of uh, donating products for reviews in terms of guest posting in terms of um, you know, uh, offering buyer's guides for websites in terms of, uh, you know, hosting and being a sponsor for different clubs, things like that, that kind of old school link building tactics. And we tried to do them in, in as, in as white hat a way as possible. We weren't out there just buying a bunch of links. Uh, fortunately, you know, knock on wood this could of course change. We haven't been hit with any major penalties on this site over the course of eight years, but, um, but yeah, we did a lot on the, the, the SEO side, uh, off-site as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that a strategy that you think still works today, especially guest posting and donating products for reviews? I think it can if you
1: do it really carefully. I think, you know, people say guest posting doesn't work and mm-hmm. and uh, link building doesn't work. I I disagree to some extent. I think it can still work, but again, you got to be really careful about how you do it. Uh, and I think before it was more of a numbers game, and today it's more of a a, a authority and a quality game. So you know, going out and getting you know ten links for some, from some fantastic sites today is 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 really the way to go versus trying to get uh, you know links from two hundred different sites that are lower quality. You know, five, six, seven years ago. So I think it can still work. Uh, I wouldn't base an entire SEO marketing plan around product giveaways and, and guest posting, but I think supplemented uh, and done smartly. Um
0: yeah, I think it can help still. Mm, cool. So you, you, I want to talk about your other business. So you, 2008 was when you started Right Channel Radios, and you started another business shortly after that. Can you tell us a little bit about that one, and, and we'll, we'll start there?
1: So yeah, so the idea behind that was after starting uh, Right Channel Radios, just wanted to start a second business to, I think, you know, just kind of the, the classic entrepreneurial curse of wanting to do more things uh, than just the one thing you're focused on. So I uh, took the same kind of pragmatic approach Really focused on uh, just trying to pick something that we thought would, would be a viable niche and uh, pick trolling motors, move forward with it. And I think we launched that in 2000, 2010 is when we, we started that business.
0: And Were you able to use any of the, the marketing, maybe email lists or whatever you built up uh, with uh, Right Channel Radios to help launch trolling motors? No, and that
1: probably was a mistake. Uh, it probably would have been a better idea to leverage what we had built, but it was completely from scratch. No, there wasn't a lot of overlap in terms of customers or connections or anything.
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the, I guess, first ways I found out about, about you and, and your business and e-commerce feel was through your probably one of your most popular blog posts, which was your open book sale of your $600,000 store, talking about trollingmotors.net. Uh, so what, uh, maybe we'll start with like why, what was, the, I guess, the, pre, the, uh, the reason why you wanted to sell the business?
1: it it had to do with a couple of things. One, it was of the three things I was doing at the time, it was probably the one that uh, didn't make the most sense to focus on, didn't have the best opportunities. And, and, uh, so I wanted to sell it because it was, you know, more or less, I wanted to focus on my other two businesses. Um, uh, Secondly, I thought it would be a great experience to sell a business. Uh, it's something I wanted to do to to be able to have an exit. Uh, and third, I thought it would make for some pretty, some potentially interesting content on e-commerce fuel on the blog. So for all those reasons, I uh, decided to decide to sell it. Mm-hmm.
0: So what was the, the process like? What did you, did you work, did you sell it privately? Did you go through some agency to work it out or tell us a little about what it's like to sell a, a store?
1: Yeah, so I did it in a very unorthodox manner. Most people will, uh, most people will, sell it on their own uh, or use a business broker uh, to to sell their business. And uh, I did it with a a reverse auction. So um, what I did is I pretty much opened up all of the, I threw out a blog post that said, Hey, here's the business. Here are the financials talked about everything. Uh, I'm selling the business and it is priced. Here's the price. Uh, And, I will, you know, it's reverse auction. So most auctions, you know, you have bidders who they raise the price, right? Like someone who bids $10,000 the next person bids, you know, $11,000 and the highest bidder gets it. Um, well, I wanted to create kind of a sense of urgency to buy the business. Uh, and so I did a reverse auction, which the price starts high. And then it drops, and the first person to make a bid at the current price gets, you know, gets to buy the business. And so, so that's the approach that uh, that it took. A little bit, a
0: little bit unorthodox, but that's the one I went with. Mm. So, so what happens after the sale? Like how do you transition all of it? For anybody out there that's either thinking about buying a store or selling theirs, tell us about the process of handing things off. And it, it was—is it a smooth transition? Like, what kind of things do you look look out for when you are handing off a business that you just sold? Yeah.
1: So it's. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, <laughs> so I think one thing to, to be careful of is, especially if you're running multiple businesses, it's, it's very easy to have a lot of overlap. So for example, like our ticketing system at the time was, was serving both of our e-commerce stores. Our hosting was serving both mm-hmm. e-commerce stores. And so when I sold it and I had to get ready to transition it, I, I had to create a brand new hosting account and transfer my site there. I had to break off and start a new Zendesk account and, uh, you know, set everything up again for the new store, all these different things that you don't really think about. And it, you can, I mean, definitely save money if you're doing it on your own, but when it comes time to transferring a business, it's an absolute nightmare to try to do that. So, so that would be one thing I'd be careful of if you're you know thinking about, if you ever think you might divest a property, uh, try to keep it if you can, you know, in its own little island. That's really helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean the process, I think we went over under LOI, which means somebody bid on the, bid on the site and signed a, what's called a letter of intent to, to buy it. I think in, in early, uh, early December, I think late November, November 20th, 25th, and we had closed the deal by January nineteenth. After you know doing all the diligence, signing the asset purchase agreement, so it takes about you know a couple month process um, to get it done.
0: And is it pretty much like wipe your hands clean, or like, it, or is there a kind of? Uh, I'm not sure how, how similar your situation is to other other sales, but were you were you required to be a part of the business for a certain amount of time with the transition, or like you're saying in January you finished the sale and then that was it. You're off, they're off on their own, and you're you know off on your own.
1: Yeah, no good question. That usually with most sales, there's a transition period and it varies based on the owners, the complexity of the business, a lot of things. Uh, for ours, it was, uh, yeah, it definitely helped him out for a couple months. So, you know, maybe, or maybe, maybe six weeks. Uh, the first week, of course, you're helping out a lot. You're, you're showing him how things run. You're really walking him through things and, and helping out a lot. Um, and over time that fades, so I'd say, you know, by the time two months had gone by, I'd hear from him maybe, you know, very occasionally, maybe every month or so. And then by the time, you know, four months had gone by, I almost never heard from him. So usually a transitionary period, which you negotiate how in depth and how involved that's going to be. And you know, a lot of times people like commit to a certain number of hours that they can help with. Um, but it, it, you know, it usually for the most part it's, it's, it's up in, you know, for, for me at least was, 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 after a month was mostly finished.
0: Awesome. So I want to talk now about your probably your second most popular blog post that I've read, which is about your migration from Magento to Shopify. So tell us a little bit about the, the decision. Like why did you decide to make that move?
1: Yeah, it was the biggest reason was there's a couple of reasons. The first one was I was just getting sick of being on Magento because <laughs> it's as any Magento store owner will will probably attest to, it's it's very powerful. You can customize the heck out of it, but it's got a fairly high technical uh you know workload involved yeah. in, in terms of upgrades in terms of keeping everything running properly and and I, I'm just barely competent enough to try to tackle it myself but so poor at technical issues like you know system admin and PHP that it takes me forever and I just got I just got tired of it so I wanted to go to a hosted solution Shopify shopify was my you know the one I liked the best uh, and also to a lesser degree mobile traffic was becoming an issue uh, I definitely could have you know definitely could have just use a new theme on our Magento installation to get a mobile site up and running a little bit more effectively. But, uh, when you migrate platforms, that's a great time to redesign anyway. And so I just figured I'd kill a couple birds with one stone.
0: Yeah, you did mention that it wasn't just the move from Magento to Shopify, but you were going to invest $50,000 into a complete overhaul. Tell us a little bit about that breakdown, because I think that's you know, obviously a large sum of money, but if someone else out there wants to spend something like that or maybe a fraction of that, what can you do with $50,000 to overhaul your entire brand and your business?
1: yeah so so thirty thousand of that roughly was developer fees and design fees um, we used a great company uh, Carson McComas over at FuelMade.com, dot com a great guy and uh, did a killer job for us so about thirty k that was development design and then twenty thousand was uh, kind of just payroll expenses. Uh, my team was pretty heavily involved mm. uh, in terms of kind of building out you know, writing new copy for all the products, um, you know, getting some, some some new pictures and photography, uh, you know, really revamping the the technical uh, library that you talked about. So um, you can see kind of the before and after if you go to that blog post. Uh, maybe we can link that up in the show notes. Yeah. But it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, we got, we were able to get a brand new design, uh, a brand new logo, uh, really a fairly involved um, Kind of wizard selection wizard on our website. If you go to the web, our website right now, um, you can pick your make and model of your vehicle, and it'll automatically spit out what which one of our components work well. Uh, kind of a really cool shipping calculator on the the cart side that uh, that was built custom for us. That that says kind of like Amazon does. It says, "Hey, if you order this in the next you know one you know two hours, it mm-hmm. will arrive on X date." Um, so it was a fairly uh, definitely not a you know definitely a decent chunk of change, but um, you can get a lot for that. So
0: yeah, did you know that the investment was going to pay off? You know, again, the listeners out there might not be investing this much money into a complete overhaul, but I know a lot of entrepreneurs uh, you know on Shopify they think about doing even simpler things like paying for a custom theme or paying a developer or designer to overhaul their entire website and maybe, you know, several thousand dollars that's going to, that could be spent somewhere else. How, is there a way to determine if it's going to be a worthy uh, return on your investment to uh, focus on things like design and overhauling a website?
1: Yeah, really good question. And I, the thought process, I'd say if someone's thinking about it, if they've got an established business that's generating some... some uh, some reasonable revenues and they have a very specific reason for why they want to do a, a redesign um, and a custom redesign can help them solve some of those problems they may be having. That's a great time to start thinking seriously about it. I, I'd say for, for people, if you don't have a business that's doing uh, you a know, substantial amount of revenue, or if you don't necessarily have any specific problems or UX issues or things that, that you're trying to address with your redesign, um, that probably at that point you're probably better served with just a, a stock theme because there's a bunch of beautiful stock themes out there that are, are going to be way more cost effective than trying to, to custom hire someone to do what you're trying to do. We had a, a couple different UX things we were trying to accomplish. We wanted to invest more in branding and and uh, the business had been up and running and stable for a while in terms of kind of revenue and profitability. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I would look at that one in terms of thinking through more specifically if we knew the investment would pay off. Like anything you don 't know if it will, but kind of the, the thought experiment I did as I went through, and we had one of the reasons we did it was two thousand and thirteen uh, We had a great year two thousand and fourteen our year was terrible we, Our revenues dropped by thirty percent largely based on the mobile issue um, and so we wanted to do the custom design because one, there was some specific user interface things that uh, we wanted to address. Um, our whole vo- value add kind of like what we talked about earlier with dropshipping, is really being incredible about helping guiding people through mm-hmm. that purchasing process. And so we wanted to add some custom things that could help do that more effectively. Um, but yeah, you make some assumptions, you know, you say, you say, okay, well, $50,000, uh, if we don't, if we don't make this redesign, w- w- what is the future going to look like in terms of the increase in terms of the profit from the business and also the value of the business? Um, if we do do the redesign to make some, you know, some basic assumptions. And I had done a couple of redesigns in the past. So I had a rough idea of what was feasible. You say, okay, well, maybe this redesign, we think it'll increase our profitability, let's say, you know, 30%. Okay. So what does that translate into in terms of, you know, increased dollars on an ongoing basis? And also if we decided we ever want to sell the business, this is something I think most store owners a lot of times don't think about, how much of a difference would that make in the sale price? Mm. So you can say, well, you know, if we do increase the profitability of the business by, you know, by 30%, um, obviously you can get, you know, 30% more for the business, but your multiple you will get will probably also be larger because, you know, you're you're stopping a a sinking ship, so to speak. And uh, so, yeah, you definitely run the numbers, but there's no, There's no hard, you know, no surefire way to to understand if it's going to, to know if it's going to work apart Mm -hmm. from just going through with it.
0: Yeah, well, one thing you said was about how you want to only consider doing this if you are trying to solve a specific, like, user experience problem. And I think this is, I think it's important to talk about this a little bit because how do you know if you're, if you, if there are actual problems versus you kind of making up problems and then deciding to try and go and fix them. Because I think this also happens a lot where uh, entrepreneurs are held back because they think, okay, I can't launch it because this problem exists. But in reality, it might not be an actual problem at all, at least not a problem preventing sales. So can you talk about that? Like, how do you decide whether something is an actual problem versus a problem made up by the entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest way for us was just doing old-fashioned user testing. We used usertesting.com. dot com, and and um, probably the the easiest one to point out. I think I mentioned this on the blog post too. Was we ran some user tests and we we hired people to come to our site and shop for their vehicle. Uh, just said, hey, pick out a CB radio for your vehicle. We we picked from a pool of people that had you know off road rigs and trucks, and so we we knew they were kind of in our demographic and watched them go through the process and and almost. On almost all of the user tests we saw, they'd come to our site, they'd land on our site, and they'd say, hey, how come there's not like a little wizard here like on kellybluebook.com where I can say, hey, here's my make and model of my vehicle in year, and get recommendations. Like that's what, that, that's, that's what I'm used to doing. That's what I want to do, but it's not here. And so almost immediately we thought, okay, this is going to be a core part of our redesign because everyone, that's just what they you know, are looking for based on these tests that we've done. So um, so I think it's, to answer your question, I think user testing is really the only way to know because, yeah, you're right. A lot of times the stuff that we think is important may or may not be.
0: Yeah, I like that, that you actually went out and I think you said you, you used the usertesting.com? Yep, usertesting.com. Okay. Yeah, definitely. There's that one that I think there are others out there too. I think it's really important to not make just some blind assumptions, but actually, you know, test to see if they are actual UX problems before, you know, you invest thousands or hundreds of dollars into changing things on your site. Not just because it's money that could go somewhere else, but then all of your attention and everything, there's also kind of being wasted on the wrong things. So I want to talk about your your day to day now, what it's like running a store. So obviously, you know, you have e-commerce fuel, you have um, the you have your drop shipping site and how do you kind of spend your days? Like what do you when you wake up in the morning, how do you decide what do you spend your time doing?
1: Yeah, it's it really depends. Um, you know, when we were doing the big redesign uh, on Right Channel, it was, you know, probably 80% working on, on the e-commerce business um, for, a, you know, a period of probably six months. Uh, recently, it's been more working on e-commerce fuel, working on, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. Our private community, it's a kind of, like you mentioned, it's a kind of a private community for, for six- and seven-figure vetted store owners. And so working on all sorts of things related to that in terms of, you know, uh, improving our website or creating content for the podcast or blog posts or, or organizing a, an event that we do every year, e-commerce live or welcoming new members, things like that. And I try to break up my day. Uh, usually in the mornings, uh, I kind of have a to-do list. I fill it every night. And on the top of that, I have, you know, the one item, the one important non-urgent, but important long-term item I'm trying to work on. So it could be, uh, like today, for example, it was a, crafting an email series uh, for people that apply for our community, um, but don't, you know, they, they have a great application, they meet our criteria, but for whatever reason, they don't finish the application process. And so following up with them. So uh, try, to, try to carve out the mornings for really important strategic work. And then the afternoons, I try to do things like, uh, you know, get to email, phone calls, um, you know, things that are less important, but you know, still have to do like, um, you know, regulatory stuff. You know, they just have the little things that kind of uh, are essential. So that's that's kind of how my days and uh, and years look.
0: Mm. So, do you have a team that helps you run these businesses, or is it all by yourself? Or what is uh, what is I guess the e-commerce fuel and uh, and the rightchannelradios.com dot uh, com team look like?
1: Yeah, blessed to have a really really great team. So uh, on the Right Channel side, uh, I have kind of a, a similar structure for both. Uh, for both businesses, I have kind of one person state side that's kind of the, the operations or the, the kind of the day-to-day person that. So uh, I have someone uh, on the, the radio business side based out of Montana that runs operations, uh, answers phone calls, deals with, with customers, orders, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then uh, working with, with him is a, a virtual assistant that kind of, um, that also tag teams that. And then on the e-commerce fuel side, same things. So we have a full-time community manager. Her name is Laura Serino, and she helps out with the community. She helps out with the podcast. Uh, organizing events, a lot of different things. And she kind of handles the day-to-day um just keeping the trains running for for that business as well as she has a virtual assistant that helps uh, her with that as well.
0: So, mm-hmm. so this is a, I feel like a not necessarily a common path, but definitely a path that I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs uh, kind of follow, which is that they successfully started a business like you have done, and then uh, transition to creating content around their experience. And you know, for you, it's uh, e-commerce fuel, the podcast, website, the the community, and and kind of transition into that direction as well. And almost and you definitely have built a business around, and I think other entrepreneurs are thinking about taking their experiences and then also building websites and blogs and eventually maybe turning that into a business as well. So for someone that has a successful business and is looking to kind of head in this direction, how did you get started? How do you get started building an audience based around Teaching your, your experiences
1: For me when I got started the biggest thing I wanted to do was, was you, know, you just you just hit on it you know, build an audience first so I think if I think if you come out of the gates and you have two blog posts and one of them is the hello world, Word, world blog post <laughs> that's built into WordPress and you start offering you know a, a course you know it's, uh, it's a tough sell right unless you're mm-hmm. the world's best copywriter so first year I was uh, I started e-commerce fuel I focused almost exclusively on just, you know, on just writing, Uh, writing quality articles, trying to connect with people, trying to help people. Uh, I wrote, the way I kicked off the whole blog was I just spent two weeks in a cabin in the woods and wrote (laughs) uh, a book, uh, it's called Profitable E-commerce that I gave away for free that I, you know, I I think it was, you know, maybe I'm slightly biased, but I think I probably got charged, you know, $50, $100 for it. But I just gave it away because I wanted to use it as a way to build credibility and, and build my audience. Um, so, so yeah. So I think it's building credibility, building an audience by writing and helping people first, and then figuring out what kind of things that they need, and being able to help add value once you get to that point.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a. It's one of those things where it's a pretty simple simple steps you have to take, but does require a lot of work. So it's it's not a complex kind of path. As long as you're providing value, paying attention to the community that you're building, you'll know where they'll kind of lead you in the in the right direction. Action, but it just requires a lot of work like you're saying two weeks straight of writing I think would, would kill me so I congratulate <laughs> you on, on doing that um, cool so maybe it closes out let's talk about some of your favorite things um, what are some of the apps and tools you use to run your business apps and tools
1: uh, I use Asana that's kind of what we use for our internal knowledge base and, and kind of task tracking uh, Skype of course use Help Scout and Zendesk um, Man, what else? Let me, uh, let me grab my phone just a second. Let yeah, me let's see. take a look. All right, use Evernote. Uh, I'm kind of an Evernote, Evernote newbie, but definitely use that. The Shopify app is, gets opened quite a bit. Um, let's see what else we got here. Um, Any Shopify-specific
0: G- apps that you use?
1: Uh, oh, you mean like plugins for Shopify?
0: Yeah, those as well. I think a lot, a lot of listeners like love hearing about what other uh, stores use just to see just check it out themselves.
1: Yeah, we don't use too too many. We use uh, we use one that is a uh, um, we use Yopo. We use uh, a map disclosure. This is a, an app developed by my brother, but uh, it's cool and we I love it. We have it on our site. Uh, it's 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 a, it's an order map, and it it shows uh, it shows like your orders of your customers in real time. Uh, so you can customize it and it'll show like who ordered you know and where they ordered from in the last week on your website. We use that. That's that's kind of cool. What's the name of that app? It is. It's called Simple Map, and the website is simplemaps.com. So we use Simple Map. We use uh, the Clavio plugin, uh, traffic control to deal with 404s, um, directed edge for for product recommendations, order lookup, which lets people uh, look up their orders tabs without logging in. Those are the big ones.
0: Cool, and are there any books or blogs that you that you think were the most helpful to helping you on your entrepreneurial journey and just your business? Wow,
1: well, I think early on the uh, the guys at StomperNet, like the old school SEO and online marketing um, training program, those are the guys that I cut my teeth on on marketing with. So I don't, I don't think they're around anymore, <laughs> but uh, it was uh, they definitely helped me get my start. Today, uh, people I read a lot. Uh, definitely read the Shopify blog. I read, uh, I read Steve Chu's blog over at mywifequitterjob.com. Drew Sanaki's blog over at nerdmarketing.com. Uh, I read uh, Ecom crew uh, by Michael Jackness uh, and his co-founder over there. Um, Jason, uh, Jason retail geek uh, Goldberg uh, over at uh, retail geek.com. He's got a lot of, he writes a little bit more from a larger enterprise perspective, but uh, has a lot of great stuff uh, over there. Um, the Moz blog, enjoy the Moz blog. Um, those are the probably the big ones for for work and e commerce that uh, that I follow on a regular basis.
0: Awesome. So, uh, what's in store for the remainder of this year, remainder of 2016? What kind of I guess big term goals that you want to hit by the end of the year?
1: Yeah. So we've got. I'd like to really get a, a product that we've been developing in house. Uh, it's on the market right now, and we're just in the very, very early phases of of trying to build up, uh, build up, really market it more or less. So I'd like to get that. It's our first proprietary product. It's a it's a vehicle organizer that we built, and um, so I want to get that to the point where it's generating some meaningful revenue, and really more or less, uh, more than anything, learn how to the ins and outs of manufacturing a product, importing it, selling it, uh, kind of moving beyond dropshipping. So that's a big goal. Uh, we've got e-commerce fuel live. Um, coming up in Savannah for all of our private form members, uh, all of our community members, and um, that should be fun. It'll be our third annual event. Looking forward to doing that. Um, hopefully, looking forward to doing some some travel and some adventures with the family. And um, yeah, those are and uh, kind of added in one a couple of things we'd like to do for the uh, the e-commerce fuel community. Uh, move over to uh, some some more advanced form software, as well as build out a, a really robust tool for for being able to talk about and review, um, uh, platforms and carts and tools that e-commerce merchants use. So right now we've got, you know, in our community, we've got tons of discussions on everything from, you know, Shopify, big commerce and, and, uh, you know, Yoppo, all the, the apps and, and, and carts that people use, but they're kind of scattered everywhere. And one thing we want to build out by the end of the year is a platform that uses that leverages built with, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's mm-hmm. a really cool app that, uh, and So so create a platform that goes out, scans all of our members' stores, detects what their technology is, and consolidates that. So for example, if you want to learn about Yopo, you can go to a page in our community and it'll say, hey, here are the 150 members that use Yopo. Here are all the discussions on Yopo in the community right now. Uh, and so it's just a way where you can really quickly not only see everything with Yopo, in one place, but you can find what store owners are using it and get real world feedback on on it uh, within uh, kind of people that you trust inside. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of some of the stuff that uh, I'm excited to to roll out this year. Yeah, I
0: love the idea. So, you know, thanks so much, Andrew. So, RightChannelRadios.com is the e-commerce store. EcommerceFuel.com is the website, in the community, and e-commerce fuel podcast. Search down iTunes for Andrew's podcast. Anything else there or anywhere else that you recommend the listeners go and check out? They want to follow with, with up or follow along with. Uh, what you're doing?
1: Uh, just you know, on Twitter at Udarian, y o u d e r i a n or at Ecommerce Fuel. Um, between that and the blog uh, and the podcast, uh, do a podcast like you mentioned as well. Just the Ecommerce Fuel podcast. You can Google it or go uh, Ecommerce Fuel uh, in iTunes. That's uh, those are the places I, I hang out.
0: So awesome! Thanks so much, Andrew. Hey,
1: thanks for having me on, Felix. Appreciate it. it was fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.